0: So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Chris Safarova, CEO of strategytraining.com and firmsconsulting.com and co-host of the Strategy Skills podcast. And today we have with us Dr. Luana Marquez, who is an associate professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School, past president of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, and author of Bold Move. Luana, welcome. So great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm
2: super excited to be here.
1: Luana, so to set the context, let's start with some backstory. How did you end up interested in psychology and specifically dealing with
2: anxiety and depression? Thanks, Chris. Um, So, you know, I grew up in Brazil. And, you know, if you had asked a 10-year-old me, are you an anxious kid? I'd have said, no, you know, I'm not anxious at all. Um, in fact, I didn't realize until I was an adult and a Harvard psychologist that very likely as a kid I had panic attacks, but I just called them asthma attacks. I couldn't breathe. And so, you know, growing up was um, early on, uh, my entire family and then my father left. And so it was my mom, my sister, and I. And we faced a good um, patch of adversity early on. And, you know, Seeing my mom get through and being you know, a single mother and fighting for our survival, it was the first time that I was inspired by this idea that you can overcome challenges. And eventually, um, I moved to a bigger city and learned even more skills um, from my grandmother, which by the time I got to Harvard, I realized that my grandmother was actually teaching me scientifically solid skills. Um, at that point, she just taught me how to approach instead of avoid my anxiety. And so by the time I got to the U.S., I just was passionate about the brain and understanding how the brain works and how can we be our best selves. Um, And so for the last um, 20 years, I've been a psychologist, spent a lot of time doing research and really training people how to rewire their brain to live their best lives.
1: That is such an incredible story. And I loved your stories about your grandmother who took you to public places to help you not feel anxious talking to people. I would love to learn a little more because I think many of our listeners are in a similar situation. They had challenging childhood. Often they are coming from different countries. They're currently in the US. They're currently very successful, and uh, but, but they did have a, st- a, d- a difficult start to life. So you mentioned in the book, your stories about grandmother. I think that would help our audience as well to relate.
2: Absolutely. So, you know, what I learned from my grandmother is this often when we are anxious, um, and in my case, I was 15, and I moved from a little town in Brazil to a bigger town, to Belo Horizonte. And, you know, I think I lost a sense of safety and security. And I went from being very outgoing to of like wanting to study only and wanting to avoid people. I was avoiding making friends. I was walking, going out. My grandmother would say things like, why don't you bring people over? And I'm like, no, no, study is more important. And for a while, she let me do that. Eventually, one day she said to me, let's go to the mall and let's um, eat Chinese food. And I thought this was exciting. I had never had Chinese food. It was really like a moment of like, this is going to be great. And we get to the mall. Once we get the food, you know, to this day, I tell the story. I have a little um, drop on the pit of my stomach because I remember her saying, let's go talk to the older gentleman over there. And I went on full flight or freeze. And for those of you that, you know, most of us know about it, but like this this fear response, my body thought that talking to an old gentleman who clearly was very friendly, it was just so scary. But my grandmother didn't take no for an answer. And so we sat with this person. And after a while, what my grandmother did is she really pushed uh, me to continue to talk to people in the mall. And we went from, you know, the older gentleman to some girls of my age, to the cute boy. And what I learned later on, before I go there, I should say, you know, I don't think I'd be here, Chris, talking to you had she not pushed me there, had she not understood intuitively that I was about to actually be stuck in a pattern of avoidance. And and now as a clinical psychologist, I spent you know, nearly 20 years working with people in what's called exposure therapy, which is basically what my grandmother was doing, What I understand is there was another way to do this. Um, And so for those listening to us, they're scared or afraid of talking to strangers. Like it really, there is a way to do this so that you can approach instead of avoid. And I, I was privileged enough to learn that from her at 15. I love this story. And your work
1: is so interesting, so fascinating, so much to cover. So you speak a lot about people understanding their true values and um, not being driven by emotions, but driven by values in their life. So let's start there. How would someone, How do you have any tips, any techniques someone can use to get more clarity on their values?
2: So, values are really our compass, right? The things that matter most to us. I think about values as sort of our true north in life. So, things like family or respect or integrity. And most of us sort of know our core values, but we most of the time are rubbed for a value driven life by our emotions. So, whenever we imagine it at work and it's like five o'clock and your boss says, you know, there's a deadline or you're part of a team that, a go-getter team and you just want to do that last push. And so there's this little emotion that comes up that says, I have to do this. And often we get a little anxious and so we stay at work late. Now, if we do this often enough and we have another competing value, for example, family, we end up getting really stuck because values often compete with each other. And so you're prioritizing work and, and all of us do from time to time have to sort of give attention to one versus the other. But if we're doing it only because we are anxious, that is an emotion-driven life. The opposite of that is really this idea of aligning daily actions with your values. So the tip I love to share with everybody, which is something I do, is really first, sit down and think about what are your top three and four values, not more than five. If we're trying to live a value-driven life more than five, it's impossible to actually align day to day. And once you have your top list of values, really do a value check on your calendar. So take a day and just a Sunday, you know, take a, a half an hour, look at your appointments and the things you have in your calendar for the next week. So if you care about health, is there any movement or exercise there? If you care about ambition, are you pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and taking a meeting that would be hard to do? If you care about family, how many times are you having a meal with your family? And What most of us understand when we do this is that we are living a automatic pilot life. We are sort of reacting to things that come of us instead of proactively choosing our actions based on values. And so the first step there is choosing your values. The second one is doing this value evaluation of your calendar. And the third one is really taking action, right? Take your day. Like today, for example, I did this. I looked and I was like, okay, so... I'm missing my son's soccer practice to be here with you, Chris, and I'm really excited to be here. So this is important to me, but I promise him I'll play soccer with him when he comes home at five o'clock. And so I rearranged my five o'clock meeting to a little earlier so that I could have 20 minutes with him. And in that way, what I noticed personally, and it's backed by science, is that we have a lot less stress because we're choosing those actions based on what matters most. Does that does that help, Chris? Does it track for you? Yeah, I think it is very helpful. I think it's just such a simple technique,
1: such a simple exercise to do, the one with the calendar, but it's very telling. If you actually take time every week to make sure that your calendar reflects your values. And then also another thing to point out here is that what we often do as very driven people is that we are very good at keeping commitments to everyone else. But if it is a calendar appointment for ourselves, we often would move it and not actually stay committed.
2: What, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do very much. So, you know, I share this with my clients all the time and I take this very serious. If you have a doctor's appointment today at three o'clock, most likely you're going to shop for that doctor's appointment. But if at three o'clock is gym time and you get an email, you're very likely to shift it, Right. And and so the way I take appointments with myself as if they were urgent doctor's appointments, they're part of life and death. Because I would never miss a life and death appointment with a doctor. Why would I miss a life and death appointment with me that is value driven, right? And and I'm not talking about inflexibility here. I'm not suggesting that we can't move things around. But to my point about the gym, I just use that as an example. If you had it at three o'clock and you really can't do it, where are you going to put it? You know, one day in the last couple of months, I had to exercise at 10 PM because that is the time I had, but I committed to it. I basically said, you know what, I'm just going to do 20 minutes of yoga at 10 PM. I will unwind doing it to honor that commitment. And at least for me, I feel so much better when I honor that commitment versus when I sort of fail myself and end up on empty for everybody else.
1: Loana, and let's say someone listening to this and thinks, oh, thank you so much, this is so helpful, but I actually not quite sure what my values are. So I, I would not admit it to ever to anyone else, but I'm not talking about myself, just but an example. If someone feels that I don't feel that I'm completely clear, if someone is in that situation, what would you recommend?
2: Chris, that's such a great question because the majority of people I worked with around the globe, you know, I, when I get to values in my practice with them or when I'm working in organizations and I push organizations. this just happened. I was given a keynote for a company and I said in this meeting, which was just the C-suite, I said, okay, what are the three top values for the company? And everybody had to like pull up their laptops to pull it up. And I was like, you guys are in the C-suite. Like, and they're like, well, we just, it's a quiz. I was like, it's not a quiz is that most of us. think of values as like paintings in our house. They're beautiful to look at, but we don't really pay attention. And so I love your question because of that. And there's two exercises I use um, with my clients that I think can be very helpful. One is a sweet exercise and the other one is a sour. And I'm anchor on the sour one, which basically means looking at a moment of pain. So The the way to get to your values is really pause and think about the last three or four months. Was there anything in your life that just was really painful? Did somebody say something to you that's still hurting and bothering you? Did you have to change jobs and the new job is not what you expected? Did a relationship end? And in those moments of pain, what I want you to do is literally sit for a second, close your eyes and for a minute or two, visualize that pain, experience that pain. Then for about five minutes, I want you to write out about that pain. the reason I'm recommending that you first visualize is to go back to that moment. Writing it out allows us to be able to slow down the emotional response and really understand what it is that we're saying to ourselves. Once you've done that, then I want you to look just a plain list of values. You can pull up one in the internet and ask yourself, what would I have to not care about for this value, for, for this pain not to hurt? In other words, what is your value that's being violated by this experience? Because pain only exists when something matters to us. Let me give everybody an example here. Imagine that a coworker said to you something like, I wouldn't like how you look today. That would make most of us upset, right? But if somebody that you don't really care about their relationship, you don't really need to trust them, you might just look at them but be like, that was rude. Or think to yourself, that was rude. But if somebody that you really care about and love say to you, oh my God, you really look a little weird today, that might hit a value of trust or belonging or you know feeling connected. And if you look at those moments, then you can identify the values that are being violated and very likely you can get to your core values. I mean, I just personally went through this a couple uh, months ago when I had an experience at work when somebody violated my trust. And at first I just like, was just upset. And I was like, but this shouldn't be upset. He did something that I believe was wrong, but I couldn't let go of the anger and the resentment. And so I had to sit with myself and ask, why is this hurting? And I realized that growing up poor with a lot of adversity, if I don't trust, I can't work with somebody. And so by looking at the pain, I was able to shed light on the value. And now as I move forward in my life, I can say, okay, if I'm going to work with somebody, I need to instruct and trust that person.
1: I think this is such a powerful exercise and not commonly used. And it feels like it's something that you need to do over a period of time. Just start paying attention to what you're reacting to, writing it down. And over time, you will have a list. And over time, you will notice that things will start just repeating. Nothing new will be coming up because you already
2: covered most key values. You are such on the ball here. That is like so exciting to be talking to. You You know, next executive I was working with in Mexico actually did this. We were working together and he was sitting in a wall and I said, okay, for the next month, you're every day when something bothers you, you're just going to put a note on your phone. And then every week we're going to examine that note. And by the end of the month, he was able to really like paint this beautiful picture of the values that mattered. And what happens for most of my clients is that once you get there, you go, oh, what is the life I want then? Because you flip that coin and you go, okay, then I need to build a career that's centered around those values. And then people start to thrive and really get excited. Very true. And then, for example, if you are a business owner, some of our listeners
1: are running consulting firms, they have other businesses they're building, your business will reflect your values as a founder. So it's also very important for building a very, very successful and impactful business.
2: For sure. And it allows for so much team alignment, right? If you have your core values and your company has core values and you embody them with your behavior, it leads for safety and trust within the organization. It, it also explains conflict. When somebody behaves a certain way and it's against your or the company's values, you can easily go, wait a minute, this is hurting because that person didn't act with integrity, and integrity is one of our core values. And I've seen this be a playground for then conversations. Instead of saying you did something wrong, you can say, you know what, you did upset me because it violated my and the company's value of integrity. Can we talk about how to do differently or behave differently in this company? So it's an open and engaging conversation that is values aligned, right? And you imagine that if somebody's in that company, they would want to be value aligned. And I've seen people choose to leave companies because their values were misaligned now. Very true. And even in terms of communicating to your clients and
1: attracting the kind of clients you want to work with, knowing what your values are and then what your company's values are, and then communicating, it allows your clients to, to know if it is a good fit. And then you attract more and more people that you actually want to work with and will enjoy the process of working with them.
2: That's exactly right. All of us have a different set of values. And if we align with our clients and attract the same kind of person, then you're building with each other. Like there's a state of flow that happens that allows things to just happen a lot easier versus if you're trying to impose values on people, which just gets to gridlocks. Lana,
1: and in working with your clients, do you ever come across situations where people do this exercise, they have their list of values and then they realize, hold on, I don't like this list, I need to change it. And what happens then?
2: So the interesting thing is, I think some core values, like for example, integrity, I'm sorry, my voice cough. Some core values like integrity are values that tend to stay through our life. It's their values, they're important. But in different seasons of our lives, different values come up to priority. So I think like, imagine that you had 10 values that are really important. And may be two or three, they're like your top values for this season of your life. And so I've seen clients come up with a big list of values. they Number one, they wish they had, but they don't embody that value at all. So then creates this dissonance. It's like, well, I wish I did. I wish I acted with integrity, but I often tell white lies. And then They get in a pickle. It's like, well, you have to make a decision at that point of, is this really a core value or not? Another one that I've seen people run away from and then have to find is like wealth. People do not want to talk about wealth. And it's like, I I can't want to have money. And I said, well, what is so wrong? I'm not suggesting that you are robbing from people. What I'm suggesting is, why is that value bad? And so I've seen people have a list of values and say, well, but that one It's just not good. In fact, I just worked with um, an influencer who I absolutely adore. And I was asking him, you know, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Doing the five whys that in business we use often, right? And I was doing the five whys to use a value exploration exercise. And what really took a couple of weeks, and then he finally came to me and says, okay, I'll tell you the truth. I want to make this much money so I can support my family and never be poor again, but I can't have wealth as my top value. And I said, why not? And he says, well, because it's bad. And he said, who told you it's bad? He said, let's talk about why you want to have wealth. And he's like, well, I want a financial stability. I want to support my family. My mom is aging. And I said, so you're not robbing people. It's okay to have that value. So I think there's this sort of sensation of having to come Uh, become honest with yourself so that you can live a values-driven life. And, you know, um, Stephen Hayes, who worked on and invented acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a type of therapy that talks a lot about values. He says something that I love, which is values should be things that you would live by if it was a secret between you and yourself. You don't have to tell anybody, but like, if you could just keep it to yourself, what would be the true values? And I think sometimes we need to, keep us a secret so that we can embody them. Very true.
1: And I think it's also something that we would be willing to make sacrifices for lose money or uh, we are willing to pay the price to have that value. For sure. In our life. Another important thing to speak about here is limiting beliefs. So we spoke about values. Let's talk about limiting beliefs. So many of us have some limiting beliefs, unfavorable core beliefs. We can call it different things. How could we, do you have any techniques on how to rewire our brain to start believing the belief that actually will empower us versus disempower?
2: So all of us, you know, you're talking about limiting beliefs. You call it core beliefs. Core beliefs is a term psychologists use about Sort of the deeper beliefs that we create as we grew up. They're part of our history and society. And, you know, most people I've met in my career have some unfavorable core beliefs. Things like I'm unlovable, I'm worthless, I'm not good enough, I'm not enough, I don't belong. Um, and you know, there was mild versions of those things, which is um. You know, I'm never going to be able to get that job. Or, you know, I'm not strong enough to push for that promotion. And so, Chris, our brain is on all the time, and we have thoughts all the time. And most of the time we just believe them, but thoughts are not facts. So the first thing I want to say about, you know, um unfavorable core beliefs, mostly just the narrative in our brain, is to stop and go wait a minute, why am I believing everything I'm saying to myself, right? Everybody I've worked with in my life, when they say some of their thoughts out loud, they go, wait a minute, like that doesn't make sense anymore. Because in our brains, it's quiet and it's running fast and our brains often distort it. So the first step on changing them is really getting them out of your head because it's really fight it hard to fight our brain because it's so fast. So if you have a limiting belief, I'm an imposter, um, I'm not good enough at this job, other people are better, like sit down for a second and just write down those thoughts, because by just getting them out of your brain, we are actually taking power away from them. Once you have a list of thoughts, and please don't edit it, it's not something like this, I might be an imposter, because we don't talk to ourselves that way. We talk to ourselves like this, I'm an imposter, I'm not good enough, I'm never going to be successful. And so really try to be true with yourself, write down those thoughts. Then the second step is really starting to examine those thoughts. And one of the techniques that often we use is looking at them and asking questions of your thoughts and trying to almost cross-examine them, becoming a little bit of a detective of your brain. And so if you say to yourself, I'll share my own example, it's probably most helpful. Growing up the way I did, I had this belief that formed very early on that I'm not enough. Now, most of us as a kid and early in adulthood, we don't pay attention to that. I never walked around saying I'm not enough. What would happen is something like this. I got a publication accepted to a major psychological journal and my brain would say, Oh, it only got accept- accepted because the co-authors are smart. I'm not smart, and by making that little jumble, allows my belief to exist. I'm not smart. I'm not enough. And so, asking questions out of it would look something like this. You know, how do papers get graded? Like, how? Who chooses? While well, there's a blind process of review, and why would they only? Number one, they wouldn't even know who I am right? So it couldn't be accepted just because um, other people are smarter because they wouldn't even know who I am. And so when you look at the data, you can say to yourself, things are more balanced, not happy, balanced. And so I was able to eventually get to thoughts like, I worked really hard for this paper. I'm first author. It's a blind reveal. I'm enough. Now, there's a trick here that I want to share with everybody, because every time I talk about this, and if I'm sitting in front of you, Chris, and we're having a conversation, I, I know, I bet your brain went there. Lots of people whose brain goes there. It's like, well, but I don't believe that thought right away. And most of us don't. When we start to change the narrative in our brain, the old narrative is so much stronger, right? And, and, and so the first step is just to create flexibility. Learn to talk to yourself a little different. And I'll say one more thing about this, and I'll stop because I don't want to um, just keep going. But um, I also learned this from my grandmother. When I lived with her, she not only got me to approach things, there's many times I'd be really upset. And I say things like, my life is never going to be anything. Or, you know, one time um, my father didn't show up for a meeting and I was devastated. I was like, he doesn't love me. He'll never love me. No one will ever love me. And my grandmother looked at me and says, is there another way to see this situation? And so for anybody listening here, if you're stuck and you're saying to yourself, some of those thoughts I verbalize, Ask yourself, is there another way to see the situation? I think those
1: are very powerful thoughts. I feel that it takes a lot of work to rewire the way you feel about yourself, the way you think about yourself. I remember I started doing this work from the time I was a teenager, and I truly know that it's the only reason I'm here now that I was able to have the journey that I have had. And so I believe that it is such a crucial work to do and it is a lifelong work as well, especially if you had very tough upbringing. There are are so many traumas and issues you're dealing with and limiting beliefs that were implanted by other people when you as a child could not protect yourself yet. And so I think what you shared is very good start. For someone who wants to go a little deeper, are there any? Let's say they're committed to do the work. If it takes months, if it take if if it will take a year, they don't care. They will do the work. Are there any other exercises for some beliefs that are really deeply
2: ingrained? So in in my new book, Bold Move, I have actually a lot of worksheets. So the way I wrote the book was really to give people the tools that I felt like were necessary to get you unstuck. And 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 Chris, I'm so glad they shared because, and I'm so honored to be sitting here with you because it does take a lifetime to change this, right? When you grow up in certain ways, or when you're a child and you couldn't be protected, your brain has only one pathway, the highway of those unfavorable beliefs, and so you know. One way, another way to do this, and and you'd have to look at the book for the exercise. And, and the reason I'm suggesting, there's many books on this. It doesn't have to be just mine, by the way. But it's really important to write out. And what you're doing here is you're fighting what we know is called confirmatory bias. We want to confirm what we know. And the reason the brain confirms what we know is because it takes less energy, Right. It was easier for me to say the paper only got accepted because other people are smart than to pause and update the software in my brain. Because that's what we're doing here. Right. We're literally updating the software all the time. And so you'd have to really write it down and really start to ask questions and change in and really try to rewire. But it takes a process of questioning again and again. I have to say though, you know, we know through neuroplasticity that number one we can do it. And number two, it does become automated. So I don't know for you, Chris, but for me today, whenever those thoughts I are mean, not enough comes up and they do still come up, my brain pretty quickly go, wait a minute, is there a different way to see? And I can shift so fast, which I couldn't 20 years ago. And so I think it's a matter of repetition and practice.
1: Yes, I can say that. I started this process when I was a teenager with just writing down all the terrible things that I heard about myself from people and then writing the opposite and then they started repeating in my brain for a very long time and became my own beliefs and then writing the opposite and just reading it and writing it and saying it loud emotionally. And that was the beginning of how I started rewiring my own brain. And it's, it's a lot of work, but it is very important
2: work. It really, yes.
1: Lana, and in your book, you speak about something that happens in child's brain when they are living in difficult environment as a child, maybe they're physically or emotionally or both abused at home, something bad is happening. Could you speak a little more about it? Because I think people need to know what is happening and then how to deal with it.
2: So we're we talking about adverse childhood events? Yes. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. So at first childhood events are a list of events that um, would happen to somebody until by before the age of 17. So parents divorce, physical abuse, um, sexual abuse, um, domestic violence at home, alcoholism at home. And what we know is when a child experiences such things, they're more likely to develop alcoholism, they are more likely to develop drug or substance use, more likely to um commit suicide or attempt suicide, I should say. And then the reason we know this happens is, you know, a child's brain is still in development. The child, really the only part of the brain that's developed is their limbic system, their fear network, because that's what protects us. Our prefrontal cortex, our thinking brain is not developed until much later. And so when a child experiences those things, they are on fight, flight or freeze a lot. And so their part of their brain becomes overly developed. What does that look like? A kid, you know, a um, young adult who's twenty-one, is talking to their friends and hear a loud noise and they startle really fast. And and why? Because their brain's pathway is designed to protect them, and it's really sort of the part that's overdeveloped. The good news is that we know that with good therapy and really working hard, we can reverse. Well, I shouldn't say reverse. We can address the effects of childhood um, events, and so. Now, I certainly um, went through a lot of ACEs as a child. I didn't even know this until I got to the graduate school. I have to confess to all of you guys, when I got to graduate school, I did a lot of trauma research. And the first day I was learning about this, they are talking about domestic violence. I was like, domestic violence is not traumatic. And they're like, yes, it is. And, and then out of my I flash back to Brazil and my mom's you know, horrific experience of domestic violence. And I had this feeling in my body and I was like, oh, it is traumatic. It's just that I never actually even labeled that. And so I'm glad that you're bringing it up because a lot of people that are successful in the business world either might have had that experience or somebody in your team might have had that experience. It's actually quite common. And so being able to understand the facts on the brain And that somebody might react differently based on that. Um, I think it's really important. And I would assume that people who had these dramatic
1: events as children, they probably have more often have distorted reality on certain aspects. So, and this is where anxieties come up and so for someone who is living with this kind of situation where they had very tough childhood and now they truly recognize themselves in how you describe the person they get scared when they hear loud noises they they overreact to things what they can do to start healing themselves
2: so a couple things that suggest here um you know the first one is and what how much is this interfere with your life today and sometimes if you had childhood adverse defense events, you may not know. And so it might be good to just go online and there's several trauma-based questionnaires that you can just answer questionnaires um, about, you know, um, over the past month, I had trouble sleeping, difficulty concentrating. There's three clusters of four clusters of symptoms. So you're either jumpy, you're numb or you're having trouble concentrating or you're sort of feeling really sad. So the first thing is identifying the effects on you today. And for those of us who are listening, who might be feeling really like, wow, this is really impacting my life. There is very good trauma-focused therapy. So two things that I'd recommend. One is called prolonged exposure. And now there's cognitive processing therapy. Um, You can Google those things. It's incredible. I've seen individuals with Horrific, and I mean horrific, childhood trauma, including individuals that you know came out of jail or young moms with situations like my mom, really heal completely by digesting the trauma, because from a trauma perspective, I can't make the trauma go away. Right, what we can change is the relationship with the trauma, and and the outcome of that healing is really incredible because. Trauma tends to affect safety, trust, power, steam, control, and intimacy. And so those five domains, if you're stuck on those domains and you have trauma in any point of your life, it's worth considering treatment so that you can live your best life. Lana, and let's talk about anxiety. I think we have to
1: talk about anxiety in, in during this time together. And it is a very, very important topic. I work with incredibly successful, talented, amazing people, clients. And from outside, they they look like they are superstars. They are the, the fast lane people who are getting promoted repeatedly. And they are the, the smartest person, the most influential person in many rooms. And But inside, they are dealing with a lot of issues. And anxiety is, of course, one of them. And so... In, in in your work, you talk about that anxiety is really a fever
2: and it's not an infection. So let's start there. Yeah, so most people that come work with me, they they want me to have a magical wand and they would love for me to just take their anxiety away. But you know, my my um, my point here is anxiety, although painful, and I shared my own anxiety growing up, right it's really just like a high fever. Right. If you have a high fever and you were to take Tylenol, for example, would the fever come down? Very likely. But the question is, would it stay down? And it depends on the infection. And if the infection were to be something like a bacterial infection, well, the Tylenol would help and be necessary, but not sufficient for us to treat the infection. Would have to very likely take an antibiotic. So, what is the parallel of to our emotional well-being? Well. Most of us, when we feel very anxious, and I'm sure you can think about this, Chris, and the clients you work with, I, I've seen this across every single client I've worked with on, across the globe, is that when that anxiety go high, they either step on the gas and overdo it. So there's very successful people that to manage the anxiety, they just react to everything and they do more and they do more and they do more. And it looks so good from the outside world. And I'm guilty of this, so I'm not putting fingers at anybody, but like... There's many of us are very successful, that we're successful by overdoing, but then eventually there's a price, right? And that price becomes our own physical and emotional health, one way or another. So if we don't stop, our bodies stop us. And that's what I call psychological avoidance. In fact, that's reacting as a form of psychological avoidance. And, and just to define the terms for those listening to us, psychological avoidance is anything that we do that feels like a quick fix. It makes us feel better momentarily, but it has a long-term consequence. So if your way of becoming successful is when you're anxious, you stay up until three in the morning to work and you do this again and again and again, and you can never, never, never relax. You can never step away. You can never, I've seen this on, on actually my brother-in-law who I love tremendously. I was talking to my uh, husband yesterday, every vacation I've been with my brother-in-law, he's on his computer. And he claims that's impossible to step away from work, but he's literally hitting burnout now. And so his form of psychological avoidance is reacting. He tries to go towards that. Now, there's two more forms that I think is worth for us to just briefly mention. One is some of us, when we get anxious, the way we avoid is by retreating. Those are the people that don't answer email. Those are the people that are on social media. Those are the people that are getting a glass of wine to try to manage the anxiety. It's not like you had a great day and you're celebrating. You were literally just bringing down the temperature. And finally, there are some of us that remain to avoid. And what I mean by that is like the deer in the headlight frozen in place. You're in a job that you know you hate, but you're the CEO and you're making a lot of money, but you don't like this job anymore, but you still stay. And I've worked with plenty of powerful CEOs that basically are like telling themselves a story that they have to do, even though when we look at it, They don't anymore, but they're avoiding reality. And that's really remain as a form of avoidance. Like you don't want to face reality. So you just stay doing the same thing, hoping for different outcomes. Um, And that's why, Chris, I say that anxiety, and nobody likes it, but it's just a fever. We need to be dealing with the root cause, which is avoidance. I think this helps to start
1: understand what is going on. But I think that the, that, term psychological avoidance and kind of how it actually plays out is a little bit still not fully clear. So maybe we could take an example and then say how something is actually psychological avoidance. So let's say we take someone who has a, let's say they're a germaphobe and they try to wash their hands all the time and so on. So they will feel anxiety. How would psychological avoidance
2: show up in that? I love it. I love that example because I've treated people with obsessive compulsive disorder since the 1997. Um, I'm dating myself here, I feel bad. But um, so whenever you have um, fear of germs, what happens is I'm sitting there with you and your brain says, if you touch this thing, then you're gonna get contaminated and either you're gonna get sick or you're gonna get somebody sick. So you're terrified of germs. But now what are you really avoiding? It's not necessarily the germs, it's the fear of how you feel. So if I say to somebody "Have OCD, and I've done this before, I said, let's go in a public toilet and let's touch that pub- public toilet. Now, nobody's gonna wanna touch that public toilet, right? It's disgusting, I get that. But are we gonna die from touching it? Very likely not. But the idea even doing it, that discomfort makes them so uncomfortable that instead of sitting there, discomfort, we don't even have to touch it. I'm sitting there just looking at this toilet. The fear makes them so uncomfortable that what do they do? They avoid the sensation of it and they go wash their hand. Now, when they're washing their hands, momentarily feels much better. The problem is anytime anything related to germs gets in there, they start to avoid more and more. Let me give you an example how this plays out. You know, you're afraid of germs and you don't want to get out of your house anymore. And now you're home washing. I had a patient once, Krista, her fear of germs got so bad and she had to avoid that discomfort so much that she made her kids and husband undress and hose off in the garage of their house, right? That's psychological avoidance. And in what she's avoiding, not the germs, because let's be honest, is it possible to fully avoid germs? No. It's not, right? She's avoiding the discomfort of what germs would, might, could have done. Right. And so let me let me give you a business example because I know a lot of your listeners are business folks. You know, Chris, if you get an email, let's just if you don't mind us talking about it. If you get an email that really upsets you, imagine one of your clients sent an email that doesn't feel appropriate. How what do you do with that email right away? Imagine you're sitting there, you're reading it. What's your response? Well, I will not respond right away.
1: I will think about the right way to respond.
2: Mm-hmm. and 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 how mm -hmm. keep going so i was gonna say yeah i want to hear from you so please keep going so for me
1: it's kind i was thinking about it another day it's kind of difficult to actually get me worked up about something i'm generally extremely peaceful person i think that i will just look at it from a position of i will I will step away, if I will feel that something is, that I have a negative reaction to it, I will definitely step away and I will think about why. And then I always try to think about how is that happening for me? How is that happening for, 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 for the good? And how can I
2: leverage the situation to have ultimately positive outcome for everyone? And so let's imagine that person sending you another email. They you have a response. What happens? Well,
1: actually, I think in that situation, I will just try to exit the relationship. Because mm-hmm. there, there, I have limited time on this earth. I have things to do. I have an impact to make. I want to help many people. And I think that maybe this person is not ready yet to work with us. And so it's just not a good it. And I will exit the relationship.
2: So say, so Chris, I love the way you're describing this because that's a values-driven life. You're basically saying, I know my values. I know the people I want to work with. And I will not react. I will just stay back and just calmly. Now, let's be fair. Most people don't have that level of poise, I should say. Um, and what happens often, okay? Imagine you in a job that you dislike. And I've seen this a lot of times. And you get an email that bothers you. And I'm trying to really get us to see what psychological avoidance looks like. That email triggers your fight, fight, or freeze response for everybody. So, you know, even if you're poised and you can kind of walk away, there's this millisecond of like uncomfortable discomfort, anxiety, because it's impossible not to be activated by something that is upsetting. So then when you are activated, some people will. Just react, right? So those are the people that are going to write the email really fast without thinking. I used to do that for many years. I try not to anymore, but early on in my career, whenever I felt threatened, I just react, right? Why would I react? Well, and what's the function of that reaction so that I didn't feel discomfort? Because the longer I sat looking at that email, the more anxious I was going to get, the more my brain would spin. So to avoid my emotional experience, I'd email back really fast. My husband, on the other hand, he retreats. He literally opens the email. He puts on the second screen on his computer. And then he goes to do something else. He starts to think about he's not being poised like you're talking about. He's literally avoiding his anxiety by not looking at it. He's moving away from that email. And I've worked with a client that would just like sit there and she described this as like, I just stared at this email for half an hour and I was frozen. And, and it's interesting because the freeze response biologically is different. It doesn't have as much arousal as the fight and flight. And so she would say, I'm not anxious. I said, Okay, I get that you're not anxious. I said, But why didn't you respond yet? Because my brain went blank, right? She was avoiding that reality by going blank. And so all of this to say that psychological avoidance is not about what we do, it's the why we do it. And if the why of our actions is really to just get a quick fix, like, you know, If I, if I have this, this glass of wine really fast, I'll feel better not to enjoy it, just to get a quick fix. And it has a long-term consequence. That's the other piece. And and there's one thing that I didn't say, and I'm so glad you pushed on the definition, Chris, psychological avoidance. I coined the term psychological avoidance because it's avoidance to perceive threat, not real threat. So an email is not a threat to your life. So in the case of, as I said, domestic violence, that's not avoidance. Walking away is safety. Psychological avoidance is only when we're trying to get a quick fix instead of enduring our emotions. Does that paint it a better picture?
1: I think so. Thank you so much. And you also have a term reactive avoidance. Let's
2: talk about that. So reactive avoidance is the individual that whenever their temperature goes high, they go towards discomfort in such a way that they literally react. So this is the person that escalates or, you know, have you ever sat in a meeting, a corporate meeting, and you see that person that's getting nervous and getting upset, not nervous, upset. And honestly, they just dominate it and they're talking and they're talking like, and and you could see them escalating. I've worked with people that are explosive as reactive or, you know, they are, they're in social media and they just start blocking people right and left They're like just reacting to it. It's really this idea that like, because you can't tolerate your own emotions, which is the core psychological importance, you then target, you go towards that emotion. But really, just to feel better really fast. And then the next day you have to clean up that mess. That is very true. You also
1: spoke about that just do it doesn't get it done. <laughs> Yes. Let's talk
2: about that. Yeah. So you know, I love the Nike term "just do it." I think Nike is brilliant with that, and I think this idea of you can't think yourself to go to a run in the morning; you just go for a run. It makes a lot of sense. But when it comes to brain biology, and we're talking about avoidance, very likely you've been avoiding whatever you're afraid of for a long time. So if you're afraid of heights, you've been avoiding for a long time. If you're afraid of conflict, you've been trying to minimize conflict for a long time. And if you try to go all or nothing on, and is this this skill I call approach in the book. So if you try to say, okay, I've been avoiding for six months asking my boss for a raise, but today's the day I'm going to wake up and I'm going to walk in his office. It's our meeting. And I'm going to say, I deserve a raise. Raise very likely will happen is you're going to show up in your boss's office. He's going to bring up something. Your brain is going to freeze up and you're not going to be able to do it. Because when we go from zero to a hundred on any kind of anxiety, we're activating that emotional brain and it goes to protection. It basically goes, this is dangerous. You can't do it. So the reason I say, just just do it won't work for, for overcoming psychological avoidance is that we actually have to train the brain that asking for a raise is not dangerous. So what does this look like? And I call this opposite action. Anxiety tells you that you can't ask for a raise. What is one step, baby step, that you can do towards asking for a raise that would help? For example, you could write 10... 10 reasons why you deserve a raise. You can practice asking for a raise with a coworker or a loved one. You can set up an evaluation with your boss and ask about what you're doing well versus not in preparation of eventually asking for a raise. And each one of those exercises are very parallel to what my grandmother did to me in the mall, basically forcing me to first talk to an older person and then somebody my age and then somebody very good looking my age. And that is just training the brain. Think about this as like repetitions in the gym for your brain.
1: And I feel that we need to use the remaining few minutes we have together to actually speak about your approach, shift, approach, align. Maybe you could give a little bit of a background on what it is and how can people use it.
2: So Chris, the book's premise, as we've been talking about, is this idea that psychological avoidance is the real enemy, the real infection. And so once we're able to identify it through either react, retreat, or remain, then there are three skills that can help us overcome it. The first one is shift. Shift is what you and I've talked about already is this limiting beliefs. And how do we you know, change those limiting beliefs? I gave the example of being a detective of your brain. Uh, my grandmother says there are different ways to see the situation or can you talk to yourself as if you ta- were your own best friends? We tend to talk to our best friends so nicely, but not to ourselves. So shift is changing the, the narrative in your brain. Approach, we just talked about it, is the idea of opposite action. Anxiety demands, mandates that you avoid. What you're gonna say to anxiety is no, I'm going to take a baby step towards what you know I want to do in my life. And finally, we actually started there, which is align. Align is aligning your daily actions with your value. I think we talked a little bit about looking at a calendar and really doing a values assessment. But research shows that if we actually live a life that is aligned with our values, we're less stressed, we have better well-being, less anxiety, and less depression. And so, why not choose to live our best lives? And and the book um, talks about scientific principles and helps people with real actionable items so that we can really together build a bold world.
1: Luana, and do you have specific routines that you do maybe in the morning, in the evening, on a weekly basis to keep yourself in the right state of of mind and just make sure that everything is going well in terms of managing
2: anxiety, managing your limiting beliefs and so on? So I, I, as I shared already, I do uh, my values check every week. Um, I try to arrange things as much as I can to fit with my values. Um, Health is really important to me. I've always struggled with obesity my whole life. And so I try to make sure that if I can't hit the gym, at least I go for a walk or I step outside and I move in my body. Um, And then, you know moments of silence and moments of sort of gratitude to things that are super fast, that can really be great. I did this at lunchtime today, I just sat outside and for a little bit, I just was quiet. And then I was listening to Deepak Chopra for a few minutes to just like remind myself of, you know, you're present, you're here. Um, And um, it's not a perfect game. Often my husband has to come and say, hey, you're speeding too fast, slow down. And then I was like, oh, today I was off center. And, and I think those are opportunities to go back and figure out the next step.
1: And the last question from my side is, and this is my favorite question to ask. It's not about the book or the work, but just general question. Over the last few years, what were two, three aha moments, realizations you had that really changed the way you look at your work or the way you look at life in general?
2: What an amazing question, Chris. Um, so the first one happened about two years ago when I hit a major wall, I was really upset. I was 40 pounds overweight and I just was ignoring it. And I realized that I was totally living by the wrong values. I was like, what am I doing? Like, And, and you know, it wasn't that the values didn't matter anymore, but it wasn't the most important one. And so... I felt like a real hypocrite. I work with people on values all the time. And out of suddenly, I lost my way on my values. And so that was one that really changed. Um, the other one, I guess they're all values. Well, when that happened, mm-hmm. then I think what changed was this integration of like, okay, so what are my new values? And, and I had to then look at the whole story of my life. And in fact, that's why I wrote this book because you know, I had compartmentalized my life as many of us do. Work is this, person is this. And I realized that I was being half of a life by not integrating everything. And and concretely, like being honest about what are the struggles I overcame and how I overcame in them and what are the struggles I have today. And I feel so much better being a full human being with you today, Chris. So like I guess that's what I say to people is if there's a part of you that you've been trying to keep on the closet because it feels like it's the only way, I'm here to say that it's much richer life when you shop fully as you.
1: That is very true. And there will be enough people out there who will actually be delighted to meet that you, full you. And some people will always
2: not like you, no matter what you do. That's exactly right. But you know what's interesting about? If you're a you, it doesn't matter if people don't like it because you're not doing to somebody. You're like integrating yourself. And I think at least for me, and I sense that for you, Chris, um, tell me if I'm wrong, but like, it just feels like it's worth them doing. It's worth pursuing the dreams. It makes it makes their hustle so much more worthwhile. Very true. You're actually stealing
1: yourself from the world when you're hiding it. Because there, yes. there will be people out there who need to
2: see it. It will help them in ways so you don't
1: even realize.
2: That is so true. The power of connection and in belonging is so powerful.
1: Luana, well, this is a great place to end this amazing call. Before we do that, do you have any anything else you want to share add, and where can people learn more about your book and
2: your work? So you can find me on the social media channels at Dr. Luana Marquis, M-A-R-Q-U-E-S. My website is www.drluana.com. The book comes out May 23rd and I hope many of you join me to um, create a bold world. Great, thank you very much, Luana.
1: Really amazing to have you with us today. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Our guest today again has been Dr. Luana Marcus. Check out Luana's book, it's called Bold Move. And I will see you all next time.